We are a church on mission to raise up disciple makers who share the gospel where we live, work, and play. All right. Hey, we're a church on mission, and last week we unpacked from Matthew 28 what the mission is. If we're on mission, we need to know what the mission is. And so we re-looked at the Great Commission, which is uh, Jesus giving that mission to his disciples. And of course, we, as followers of Jesus today, are on the same mission. We, the good news is we don't have to figure out what the mission is. It's right there in Scripture for us. And so the Great Commission tells us we're uh, to be making disciples. We're to go into the world and make disciples And so we're supposed to teach people uh, to obey everything Jesus commanded. And so we recognize that that the first step for us is to be a disciple, but that that's not the end of it. Just to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is not the end of the uh, the mission for us. To grow up, to become people who can help others. So we become disciple-makers. And that's really the goal that God has for us in this life. And so we're recognizing that this mission that we're on involves that. And so last week we looked at what the mission is. This week I want to look at how we pursue the mission with passion. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning in the scripture. If you want to look that up in your Bible, follow along. Of course we'll have the verses up on the screen. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is a famous passage And I'm hoping this morning that as we unpack this passage, you're going to catch a little bit of the passion that the human author is putting into this uh, into this writing. Now we know that the scripture is God breathed; it's it's um, inspired by God, so God's the real author. But He is breathing through humans as they wrote it and as they lived for him. And so this morning, we look at some of the writings of the Apostle Paul, who is an extremely passionate follower of Jesus. He was passionately pursuing the mission of God. If you know Paul's story at all, he was also called Saul. And he was a guy who was actually passionately working to stop the mission of Jesus. He thought that Jesus was a false Messiah. And so he starts off in the Bible, in the book of Acts, when we first learn about him, he's actually there as Stephen, the first martyr, is stoned. Okay? And that's with rocks, not with pot, right? He was stoned. And so he's killed for his, I know that's a cheap, but it's always kind of fun to see. Okay, so he, this is the nature of, of Paul. This is the guy he is. And so he's passionate about stopping. But then if you know Paul's story, he was on a trip to Damascus and Jesus had a little intervention with him, right? He met, had a little meeting with him. And, and first thing he did was kind of knock him up Side the head, right? He knocked him off his horse. He made him go blind. He got his attention. And then he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, Saul said, what are you talking about? Who are you? And he came to realize that Jesus really is the Messiah, the son of the living God, and that he was on the wrong team. And so he got corrected and he got lined out and he used that same passion that he was doing out of ignorance, working against the movement of Jesus. He started working for and he'd made a tremendous impact. And so we want to catch a little bit of this fire that, that Saul or Paul has as he pursues the mission. You and I are called into that same mission. We have the opportunity to participate in the most uh, incredible, life-changing work that you could ever be a part of. And I want you to be a part of it. I want you to understand the call of God is on your life to engage this mission. 
Here at church, we have uh, some core classes. One of them is called the shape class, and I get to teach that. And the second letter, the second week, if you will, or the second lesson is on the H, which stands for heart. And it really has to do with this, that motivated direction of your life. Passion is a motivator. And when we're passionate about something, we pursue it. And so the first thing that we learn as we follow Jesus, the first area where we pick up some of this passion is that we have a passion to persuade people. A passion to persuade. Look in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, follow along as I read verse 11. Again, the Apostle Paul speaking about his life. He says, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. He says, listen, I have uh, a little bit of fear in me, a little bit of uh, respect, a little bit of concern, if you will, that provides some motivation for me in that I know someday I'm going to stand before God, and I'm going to give an accounting as to what I did with this calling that God placed on my life. Did I pursue it? That's some good words of encouragement for all of us. I mean, we'll also give an answer to God. Paul gave an answer for his life and what God gave him to do, but we're all called into this mission and we're all gonna stand before God, give an accounting of what we did. And so it should help keep us motivated a little bit to move towards the, the, um, the persuasion of people. It says, I try, I try to persuade people. Persuasion can sound a little aggressive, right? Um, to some of us, it might sound like an argument, you know? We're getting into a discussion with somebody that might get a little intense. But persuasion is just to help someone uh, to see something. And it really comes from the evidence, right? It's a presentation of the evidence. And, and um, in doing so, to help someone just see what the, what the reality is. And so Jesus told us kind of the first level of influence that we should have in the world or persuasion. It really begins just with the evidence that is seen in our lives. As we live our lives as followers of Jesus, Jesus said, you're going to stand out in the world. In Matthew 5, the, great, um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching, he says this to the people, talking about how they're supposed to be kind of like salt, right, on the earth, and they're supposed to be light. In verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. It's like, uh, just live your life out in front of people and live for Jesus and follow him. And when you do, your life begins to change. How you act begins to change. The way you live and how you interact with others, it changes. You start to reflect God and you're gonna do good work on the earth. You're gonna contribute to the world. You're gonna help others and just do that out in front of people. Don't hide it. And in doing so, you're gonna influence your family. You're gonna influence your coworkers, your neighbors, the people that watch you live. That's really what Jesus said, the first level of influence or persuasion. That's where it starts. Just simply testifying with our life. The next level, though, moves into a little more uh, of, uh, of an interaction that might require a little more effort, a little more confidence, if you will, a little more work. And that is that level where we're able to interact with the hollow philosophies that the world offers with the truth of what the Bible has to say and of what God has to say about this existence. And so are you able to interact with those 
beliefs and philosophies and ideas that the world puts out. One of the things that's changing the world we live in, and I could do a whole series on this because there's so much out there, but, you know, in 1966, Time Magazine had a cover that said, Is God Dead? And it really, our society reached a point where uh, the academic um, pursuits and disciplines in our world had achieved a level where they really believed God doesn't exist. We've kind of moved past all that hocus pocus, mysticism. Now we're in the age of reason and science and we have the facts and the facts really play out that there is no God. And of course, um, uh, since then, (laughs) um, the pursuit of truth has not stopped. Okay, And so there was some hubris involved in that. There was some projection involved, some anticipation of where things were going. But the truth is, the facts are, that as time has marched on the next 50, 60 years, the evidence that is being uncovered by those disciplines of observance is actually proving more and more the evidence that God does exist and that the Bible is accurate. That's where we live today. Some Christian leaders are saying we've gone through a revolution in terms of what truth is and what the evidence shows. Not much is being said about it because those in power don't particularly care for where this is going. But there is so much out there. And I want to encourage you, we don't live in a time where as Christians we got to feel like we just have to have blind faith. And the evidence of what's out there and what, is, what has been revealed and discovered just doesn't line up. The truth is that it does line up. In fact, I just picked up a book this last week called, Is Atheism Dead? <laughs> because the idea that there's no God has almost gotten so preposterous. It's unbelievable. It's undefendable. And I'm talking about in the scientific world, the, the world of just looking at the evidence of life and, and our universe. And so be encouraged. You're not on the side of hocus pocus mysticism. <laughs> Uh, as a people of faith who believe in God and believe the Bible's true, the evidence is with you. And so as you work to encounter people and engage people, to persuade them, again, um, there's, a, there's a guy I watch a lot called William Lane Craig, a defender of the faith, one of the smartest people on the planet, lays out great evidence based on the facts and based on what's observable um, as to reality. And so I just want to encourage you, um, don't, don't be behind. Don't live in the past. We live in a time where people need to hear the truth of what is being discovered and what is seen. But as we go and persuade others, one of the important aspects of that role that we have as followers of Jesus and on this mission God's called us to is that we are also persuading, but not with a hammer and not with force. Okay, God doesn't even do that. We are persuading from a place that, um, that is different in motivation. What we discover as we get on mission with Jesus is that we are motivated, just like Paul was, by the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, let's jump down to verse 14. There's a couple uh, of verses there that just have some thoughts from Paul to the church in Corinth. But here's what he says in verse 14. Either way, <clears throat> Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. Some versions, like the NIV says, Christ's love compels us. So there's a motivating factor in love. I actually like what the NLT says here, that Christ's love controls us. If you want to know what that looks like, here's what it looks like. 
as you and I interact with people in the world and we get a chance to talk to people. I don't know if you've experienced this, but every once in a while I have an interaction that's less than favorable. I don't really care for how it went, the tone of the conversation, you know, how they looked at me or reacted to me. Don't care for it. Kind of get a little bothered by it. And uh, on a bad day, it might even feel some, you know, some emotion in me, right? Wanted to respond. But here's the thing. When Christ's love controls me, I don't do what I feel like doing. I don't react the way I might feel like reacting that morning before I've had some coffee and gotten waked. I react out of the love of Christ because he is in control of my life. He controls my, be- my action and behavior. I've been shaped by him so that my reactions are different. This is what it means to have Christ's love motivating us. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a sense of the importance of love. First three verses put it this way. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Sadly, there's a lot of Christians that sound like that, right? Like an irritant, like a frustration, rather than what we're supposed to sound like, which is like life to the, to the world around us. Verse 2, if I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans, possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. The damage done by works-based Christianity, by works-based religion, earn your way to God, the damage done by that is probably immeasurable. I think it's one of Satan's greatest tactics to warp and twist the message that Jesus came to present. He didn't bring that kind of message at all. He said the way to heaven, the way to eternal life, the way to be right with God is not a path of works-based effort, right? Remember we looked at John 17 a couple weeks ago and he said, Jesus said, I can give eternal life to whoever I want. And this is eternal life to know God and Jesus Christ who he sent. It's about knowing God. It's a relationship. And this passage we're in today is going to back that up and affirm it and take it to another level. The truth is that we are motivated and must be motivated by the love of God as we interact with others. Anything less is going to warp the message that we bring. God loves people, and it is in that love that he tries to compel people into a relationship with him. It's not by uh, force, power, or coercion. The other thing that changes that we see Paul present here in this passage is a change of viewpoint. You know what a paradigm shift is? Like you you kind of realize some facts and you realize some things and you all of a sudden have a different picture of the world. And that's kind of what Paul's talking about in this next verse. He goes, my perspective on people has changed completely. (laughs) Like I used to see things just as a human being. A human leader, a human person living in this world. And remember, Paul was a religious leader. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He knew about God. He was a member of God's, uh, the people of God on earth. And yet he says, I just had human lenses that I looked through. When we follow Jesus and we get on mission with him, one of the things that happens is that we see people through a spiritual lens. Look at verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
It goes this way. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. Just thought Jesus was a human leader. That's why he was working against him. But when he came face to face with Jesus and saw that he was God, changed his perspective, right? And he's saying, listen, this has affected how I interact with people. It's changed how I see the world. Spiritual lenses give us an accurate view of the world we live in. If you're just looking through human lenses in a humanistic way at your existence and at the world, the things that happen, I can just tell you you only have a fraction of the information needed to really discern and understand what's going on in the world. Getting into a relationship with Jesus opens up our eyes to the spiritual reality. And this affects how we interact with others and how we see others and how we go through life as we relate to other people. Because the mission involves us interacting with other people. When we have spiritual lenses on, we see the spiritual needs that people have. We know that when people act out, as I said earlier, we have a less than favorable interaction with somebody. They treat us more like an enemy than a friend, you know. Um, they treat us like there's something somehow bad in us, which we know there isn't because we know ourselves we're good people. So when that happens, we see past that interaction. When we have spiritual lenses on and we're looking through our spiritual glasses at the world, we see that people act out and behave the way they do, not just because of their human existence, but because of what's going on in them spiritually. The lack of restoration in their relationship to God means they act out just, they act out of their sinful nature. And so when we have negative interactions, this is what happens when we put those spiritual lenses on and we're growing in our walk with Jesus. We're offended not quite as easily. We're not quite, we don't take as much personal offense at those interactions that occur, right? And if we do get offended, we forgive more quickly. And here's the reason why. Because God has called us to interact with the people around us. And if we are very easily offended, and if we're very easily say, I don't want anything more to do with them. They're just a jerk. They're mean people. They've treated me bad. Then guess what happens? We no longer have the ability to minister to them. We no longer have the ability to present Jesus to them. We're off mission. And so Paul says here, I get spiritual lenses on. It helps me process these interactions. I handle them differently. It's not because it is different what they're doing. It's because I see it differently. Perspective can change everything. Jesus had this ability to interact with people at a spiritual level. And you can see at times people saying things that should have offended him. It should have bothered him. But somehow he rolls right past them. And he gets to a deeper issue. He gets to the real issue. One of those interactions is with a woman who was a Samaritan woman in the city of Sychar, Jesus is traveling through. He stops in this town. He sits down at this well that was dug by Abraham. And along comes a woman who's a Samaritan. And Jesus says to her, hey, can I have a drink? And she, uh, her jaw drops the floor. <laughs> and after she gets over her concern, her, all of her red flags go up. And she says suspiciously, uh, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. You guys don't like us. 
So why are you talking to me? And Jesus very quickly moves past that physical interaction and encounter to a spiritual one. And he starts delving into some tough issues in her life and how her morality and her life doesn't line up with what she says she believes. And pretty soon it it gets intense. Here's the amazing thing. It doesn't make her run away from him. It makes her want to have more of an interaction with him. When we see people through spiritual lenses, instead of categorizing people by their intelligence, their education, socioeconomic level, appearance, race, culture, job, position, look, style of dress, whatever we do, that changes. We see people and the spiritual need that they have. See, the reality is when we've experienced new life in Christ, when we've entered into a relationship with God, we begin to experience that transformation that renewing, that healing. And that, that puts us in a position where as we interact with other people, we have a little more compassion. We have a little more concern for them. And as we see people frantically trying to make it through this life, carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, lashing out at everyone around them because they're under so much pressure, we go, man, there's a different way to live. <laughs> you, you, you could have something different, a different life. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to be consumed with the things in this life. There's something different you could have. And we begin to want others to experience the new life that we found. This is what Paul says in verse 17. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. The pace with which we move towards the new life varies Uh, We can take a long time to get there. We can take years to get there. We can live a lot of our life without really experiencing the new life. But we can also move very quickly into it. As best I can tell, the difference is how quickly we fall in love with Jesus and we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the the more uh, quickly we move in that direction, the more quickly we'll experience this life that Jesus talks about. Um, It has to do with spiritual rebirth and renewal. And this was a mystery back in Jesus' time, just as it is today for many people. There's a struggle. I've talked to so many people. I'm a Christian, but I'm not experiencing. Like, I still have the weight of the world. I'm so stressed out. I'm not getting victory in my life. What's going on? Jesus promised all these things. I'm not experiencing it. And, And Jesus had an interaction with a religious leader named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. In John chapter 3, he comes to him at night, you know, sneaks in. Hey, Jesus, can we talk? You know, uh, we know that you're from God. Like we can see. Your miracles prove it. And Jesus just jumps all that, um, all the niceties, you know, and he says, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? You know, all physical. He has no spiritual awareness. And Jesus is like, you're a religious teacher in Israel and you don't understand spiritual things. And so he pushes in with Nicodemus to the need for spiritual renewal, rebirth. That kind of existence that is offered to us looks like this. Jesus in Matthew 11 said, "Um, here's what I'll do for you. If you come to me and you let me teach you how to live this new life, I will lighten the burden that you carry. Jesus said that famous line in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. 
Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus said there's a a lighter burden that you can carry. If you come and walk with me, I'll teach you how to live different, a new way of living. It's a worry-free life that Jesus offers as well. Matthew 6, he talks a lot about worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. He said, you don't need to worry about that stuff. You guys are carrying around this burden of of how you're going to provide in these areas. And yet, the truth is, you have God in heaven who sees you, and he's worried about those things. He's going to provide for you. He's like, don't carry that stress. Here's what you need to do. Verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own. Oh, no, jump back to, sorry, verse 33. Here's the key. He said, here's the key to living. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the life that Jesus offers, the new life. He said it's a life that's no longer defined by your failures, no longer defined by your sin. Romans 8.1 says this uh, most famous line, so there, or excuse me, so now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can get free from your past. You can be forgiven and healed and restored. And the truth is that as we follow Jesus on this mission, really what we're doing is we represent Jesus, helping others get reconnected to God. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 through 21 says it this way, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him, restoring that relationship, right? Verse 19, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation, So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. This is the mission. (laughs) And we should be passionate about it because every day we're around people who are separated from God and they're still living in darkness. They're trying to figure out the meaning of life, trying to get some happiness, trying to get something that feels good in the midst of a world full of sin and pain and suffering. And you and I have a message of hope, a message of forgiveness, a message of reconciliation. The God who created you, who you will answer to someday, he loves you. He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to walk in relationship with you. This message is probably never been more pertinent than it is today. We know that the need in our world is great. And so Paul ends this passage by, with the same urgency that we feel today as we look at the world around us and see the struggles people are in, is Paul said, we know that today is a day of salvation today, not tomorrow. Don't put off the decision. You can have life right now. You can be forgiven right now, today. There's no need to wait. In uh, 2 Corinthians, moving into chapter 6, the first two verses, he says, as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness 
and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Are you still trying to walk with the heavy load of life? Are you still walking with those burdens and those worries and those cares? Do you still have the world crushing you? You don't have to. There's a way out of that. And it's not a way that um, puts aside the responsibility. It's actually a way that will give you more power and strength to handle the issues in life. Because when you know you're not in it alone, when God is right beside you, worried about the same things you are, and in fact carrying the part of the load that you can't carry because it'll crush you, you know how much better you perform? You know how much better you're able to solve problems and, and encourage people and stay positive and have a good attitude? That changes everything. Jesus didn't say, ignore life and just blindly trust in me. He said, I'm a God who knows you and cares about you and I'm walking with you. And I'm gonna help you through this life. You don't have to do it alone. Have you put your trust in him? Have you asked him into your life? Have you asked him to forgive your sins? Um, out in the ocean, hundreds of miles off the shore. There are huge storms that stir up massive waves. And these waves, some of them die out in the ocean, but some of them make it to shore, 20 foot high or more. And there's areas in the world where these waves crash into the beach and there's some crazy adrenaline junkies who've decided, hey, it might be fun to get on a surfboard and ride those waves. Now, it's absolutely insane because uh, one mistake can result in your death, obviously. Those waves have tremendous power. Falling off one of those waves oftentimes means being pushed 50 feet down under the water, which is a long ways to make it back to the surface before you run out of air. It's a crazy endeavor, and yet many of them would claim it's the most exciting, exhilarating thing you could do in in this life. You know, in our world, storms get created all the time out in other parts of the world sometimes. Sometimes they're brewing right here close to us. And they create some pretty big waves. And those waves can crush us and they they crush a lot of people because they can be destructive. But I want to tell you that those waves, oftentimes if I stop for a minute, step back and look what's going on, I recognize they're really spiritual waves. They're waves that God is working through to bring people to awareness of him. And that as a Christian, if I would not be scared of the storms and recognize he's in charge of them, and that these waves are not something to be feared because they can destroy me, they're actually something to get my surfboard out and ride, then I can experience change and transformation in my life. Because God moves oftentimes through the storms in our life, the storms in our world. I wonder if you would join me as a church, as a group of people following Jesus on mission to not be scared of the storms around us, the craziness that's being stirred up in our world, but instead see that God's moving and that if we get ready and get uh, our perspective right and see the waves as something to be ridden and not to be hidden from, that we can be a part of what God's doing in our world right now perhaps more than you and I have ever seen in our lifetime, maybe in a couple of lifetimes, that there's a movement of God and I see it happening. I see people moving towards him. I see some amazing miracles of life change, restoration, healing. You can be a part of it. I don't want you to miss it. I don't want us to miss it as a church because we're surrounded by people who need to hear the gospel. 
I hope you'll join me on that mission. Get your surfboard out. Get ready to ride. God's moving in some amazing ways. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the way in which you turn what can be destructive into things that can bring healing and restoration. And God, I just pray that you would move in us, move in me, move in our church. God, help us to step up in the times we live in and to make sure that we're right with you and that we're moving towards you and that we're seeing this new life that you offer us. We're seeing it happen in our lives and we're living it so we can help others find you too. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As always, we want to offer an opportunity to respond to what we just heard. You know, and Pastor John really hit on this element of the love of Christ compelling us or leading us into the mission of God. And one characteristic of love that I think sometimes we can overlook in the scripture is jealousy, that God is jealous for us because he loves us. And God has poured out his life for us because he loves us. And sometimes we lack the passion or we lack excitement for the mission of God because we're distracted by other things. Other things have our passion, other things have our heart, and other things have our time. So as we close with this song of worship, to really reflect, you know, are there things in your life that are grabbing your passion? Because Jesus says we can't serve two masters. We can't be passionate about what we want and what God wants at the same time. And eventually, if we're God's child, he will take away those things that are distracting us because he loves us and because he is jealous for his people. He's jealous for his church because we ultimately are the bride of Christ. So I just want to pray for us that we would be a church with a singular passion, a singular mission, and that isn't for our own pleasure, but ultimately for for the glory of God. So Father God, I thank you so much for your faithfulness. God, I thank you for the call and the privilege that you've given us to be on mission for you, Lord. And I thank you that you love us enough um, not to let us be distracted by the world, not to let us go down our own destructive path, God, but that you have a, a loving passionate jealousy for us, Lord, and I just pray that we would give you all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our strength, that all we do, we would glorify you, and in Jesus' name, we pray these things, amen.